shit record. Um, all right, welcome back to Constant Confusion, episode number three. What a fucking episode. Um, we had Adam Scorgi join us for what I thought was going to be like a 30-minute interview, and the dude ended up hanging around for an hour and ten minutes, spitting all kinds of knowledge about cannabis, uh, talked about his new movie that he is uh, trying to get picked up by ESPN and HBO called The Good Son. Um, we also covered the Culture High and the Union as well. Man, I got to tell you guys, it's it's more difficult than I anticipated to interview somebody that I admire. And uh, he and I are the same age, and it, it just seems like he's so much further along in life than me. And that's an admirable, admirable thing, you know. And uh, I had a great time talking to him. Uh, we actually probably could have called this uh, Ramble On with Adam Scorgi because I didn't do a lot of talking. I, I let him do most of the talking and uh, sat there pretty much starstruck. So that kind of sucks. But hopefully the next time I get somebody uh, with you know his credentials on, then... I'll be more comfortable. Or the next time he comes on, he did offer to come back on after the Culture High is released, so hopefully we can get into uh, some some other topics then. But we covered everything from uh, the USC to his film career. So I uh, learned a lot about him, um, some stuff that I didn't hear on the Joe Rogan experience, which is awesome. So I hope you guys enjoy, and uh, be sure and follow him. That's at Adam Scorgi on Twitter. And... Um, Donate to his Kickstarter account um, for the Culture High. Always looking for, for more funds so that he can actually get paid on this because right now he's sacrificing money out of his end and he still owes his father about $95,000. So go to kickstarter.com forward slash the Culture High and donate there. Uh, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Let me know what you think. Rate, review, and um, let's let Asher Roth bring us in. Thanks, guys. What? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the meadows where we grow the rose petals and we sip a glass of Merlot while I blow the portobello like Cruello with a cigarello. Hello, listen up. This is Asher from the Morrisville, a little north of truck. What the fuck? Oh, you didn't know? Little homie flow, he a pro. Use a little mo, use a little slow. How slow? Little Kelso, smoking elbows. If so, let me know, I'll just give you my cell phone. Hell froze, elbows, sticking like Velcro. So, you ain't got the pasta, you don't get the pesto. Pesto, go to infinity and beyond it. Rhyme Shit spitting gets imprinted on your conscience. Ask it. Listen, world sitting in your palm, and it's important that you know this so you never get it wrong. Since my mom has raised the tarot cards and the stars, it's called me to go and be a motherfucking boss. Cookie boss, look at Paul Ball. He just all talk. He's a knock, he's a lost cause. Fuck him, cut him off. But his dog's off his leash. I'm showing y'all my teeth when I speak. Yeah, I mean it. Bring Prometheus heat. Leaning his seat. You think that they be leaving the seat? A commercial MC, keeping ear to the street. Gene. We sick of watching all this shit go on This song I'm done yet The sun you start marching The marksman Part Marge, part Marge Simpson But the other parts of the card Bars is raw wisdom A false start I'm part of a large mission
attention, but you'd rather slack off the sharks than pay attention. Bark, bark. Another subpar sitting, yeah, my time is limited, and I refuse to waste a minute. So finish. Bust an ass, snuffle up the gas, in the cab, huffing grass. Fuck it, I puff it past. Enough of that. Water bath, suck up and suck its ass. Suck with ash. Yo, what happened? Yo, I heard that fucking crack. Yo, I heard he was abducted. They put something in his ass. Well, I heard he had a running with a bear and got attacked. Oh my gosh, now, where'd you come up with that? Yo, go run and tell your mother that this motherfucker's back and pay with a plastic. Nah, bring my own bags. Now, how you wanna pay for that? Straight cash, evil laugh. Yeah, I've been playing phone tag for the last six months with my label. Tell them fools to call me back. I place the race, sip the Chardonnay 50 times a day. Feeling great, can't wait to taste the marmalade. Fade away, Himalayan retreat to find me. Good grief, loose leaf. I treat it like Bruce Lee. Who's he? Why you keep seeing truth in 2D? My speech be like I mix roofies with cool keys. Guys, uh, welcome to uh, Constant Confusion, episode three. Uh, we are very pleased to have uh, producer, actor, writer, uh, Mr. Adam Scorgi. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, brother. So, uh, I was looking, uh, I was looking up your name on uh, IMDb, <laughs> and uh, the first thing that pops up is all my children. Yeah. So, as well, you, you brought that, most people will bring up that, like, well, it says. In the Britney Spears video back in the day. That still comes up from like 10 years ago. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, long time ago. I'm basically a box in the background, but if you slow down the video, I could point myself out. Nice. Um, so uh, you have uh, a new flick coming out called The Good Son. Uh, from what I understand, it's about uh, Ray Boom Boom. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Mancini. Yeah. yeah it, Ray Boom Boom Mancini was... Um, uh, lightweight champion in the world back in the 80s and was actually set to become one of the most marketable athletes on the planet, not just a boxer. Um, because of his style, he fought very risky. He took a lot of shots, but he always came forward, so he was a big attraction. This is when lightweights were the prime time in uh, boxing history, and it was when they were on regular cable television on CBS and everything, and this was before pay-per-view, so when you'd go to see boxing fights, you'd go into big hotels, and there'd be like 10,000 people or 5,000 people there to watch these fights on big screens because they had the connections to get them. Um, And then in uh, his second title defense, he had a tragic fight with a Korean fighter named Dooku Kim, who died from injuries he sustained in the fight uh, five days after the bout. And uh, boxing was forever changed after that. They looked at this kind of, it wasn't the only factor, but it was a contributing factor to they no longer had 15-round fights. They reduced it to 12. Ray got dropped by all endorsements, got, you know, had his back turned on by kind of his country and then the boxing world, uh, where he was the golden boy that was fighting to win a title for his father. And then uh, he then became the dark horse of the sport. And um, in the film, Dooku Kim, the Korean fighter, his fiance was three months pregnant with a little boy. And that boy's name, Jiwon, he's now 30. They met the very first time on camera in this film. Wow. To finally put closure to this, because it's been three decades, 30 years. What, I mean, what's the, from what it. was the mood like in, in the room whenever they met? Everybody's crying when they come out of this movie. It's funny, because we just did a, a screening in my hometown uh, and like even guys I know that are kind of run with motorcycle clubs and everything like that, they came out crying. They're like, "You made me cry, cry in front of my boys!" Like, yeah, it's very powerful. It's it's a clan. The, the meeting is 
I mean, the Korean culture is fantastic. They really forgive Ray and don't blame him. Although his son, you know, he'd only watched the fight recently in a couple, the last couple of years. And because the language barrier tries to speak English to Ray in this part of the film and, and, you know, it comes off really harsh at first, but then, you know, he is forgiving and they, they all want to move on and, and it, it's super powerful. I mean, even me watching it again with a full audience, I was getting teary. And my wife, who's not a big film person, I know, funny, I'm doing film and my wife's not a big film person. Right. Um, she was crying next to me. She's like, Adam, this is really good. I didn't know this was this good. And she's like, you're ruining my makeup. So <laughs> it was uh, it's a great night. It's very different than some of my other films. And, um, you know, but very powerful and uh, very, very proud of it. And it's something that... You know, again, you know, I'd say like the union, like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm not really into boxing and I don't really know who Ray is. doesn't matter. This is a human triumph over tragedy story. And if you just like great storytelling that is going to make you feel something when you come out of the theater, um, this is this is another good one for you. Same thing I tell people at the union. It doesn't matter what you feel about the cannabis situation. Um, you know, you will get something by the end of the, you know, watching my films on that subject as well. Definitely. That's awesome. Uh, where can people see it? I mean, well, we're just touring right now, so it's got lots of offers. ESPN loves it. Um, they actually, great compliments, said this really belongs on HBO because it's shot so well. I mean, our cinematographer won an Emmy for this. He's a brilliant cinematographer, so it is beautiful. It's it, There's moments where it literally feels more like a feature film than a documentary. Really awesome. stunning. Um, but it will be out on, like, we're looking at that right now. We don't know if we're going to get an HBO release first and then free TV on ESPN. But it'll have a full release in the new year through various markets on TV and DVD and networks. And Have they approached you about, uh, like, they have that 30 for 30 series? Yeah, well, you see, they already spent for the 30 for 30, okay. so they're buying this outside. It's outside acquisition. Uh, usually the way it works for – but it is right up the alley of 30 for 30. This would fit right in. Yeah. If not, they actually said it's shot better than most of their 30 for 30s just because the cameras and stuff we use and the lighting. But it would be right up there with the 30 for 30. But, you know, they have their, their slate, and they're like, okay, everybody pitch for your 30 for 30s. And then we already missed it, right? So they've already got this. So they're just buying this outside of it, which is um, still great, still a great Definitely. brand. Definitely. Um, so uh, you brought up The Union. That was uh, actually the first film of yours that I that I'd watched, and I found it very informative because I was, at the time, just getting out of the military, and uh, I wasn't smoking or, you know, using cannabis at all. And uh, then I saw the movie, and I was like, man, this, it really brings it back to me. Because I smoked before I went into the military. And, uh, you know, then I got conditioned while I was in the military that it was just horrible and, you know, bad for you and yeah. bring down your health and things like that. There's many things that I do that are far worse for me. Drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, things like that. A damn coffee, man. That's an addiction to me. I get up in the morning and I'm lined up at Tim Hortons here in Canada with everybody else that needs their... I always just think of that common when people say, oh, I don't do drugs. I'm like, really? You guys all lined up first thing this morning to get your drugs. Me too. Oh, for sure. Uh, So have you smoked in the past? Do you smoke now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, totally I've smoked in the past. Do I smoke now? No, not on a regular basis. Maybe special occasion once a year or something like that. But yeah. I, make, I make it a point because of the subject matter, you know, that I, I do these films that, you know, so often I, I think why the union did so well for me and my crew is that 
most cannabis films are done by activists, yeah. right, trying to make a point. We are just filmmakers, right, that went into this totally blind. We only wanted to do an expose of the BC industry. Once we dove into research, it, you know, we were like, whoa, we have so much more to talk about than what we originally set out for. And that's why I think the film came out so good, because we're not trying to change laws. We're not trying to, you know, hide any kind of truths on either side to sway people's opinions. We're just like, this is what we found diving into this. The informational links are on our website and in the at the end of the film. So if, if you don't believe what's in the film, great, do some research. That is a filmmaker's dream. With at the end of the film, you're so moved by it, whatever the subject matter is, that you're then doing research afterwards. You're looking it up on Wikipedia. You're doing a horrible film. You you want to get out of there and don't even want to take it in, right? Like you're exactly. like this is horrible, right? A great film makes you think and feel long after you've watched it. Even the Ray Mancini uh, doc I did, like, I had so many people like, man, I Wikipedia'd afterward. I started looking up his fights on YouTube because they were moved by his story, right? Yeah. And that's what we encourage, you know, and that's why I think the union's, you know, been a success. And so I make a point that, you know, I don't, I try not to, I mean, I'm human, so. Of course. Once in a while before I'm out at a cabin or something like that and the kids aren't around or something, and I'm like, ah, oh, whatever, because I don't drink really, so I'd rather knock it up and have a hangover and feel sick because I'm trying to get myself back in shape. Uh, it's tough with two kids, though, and coffee addiction and everything else doesn't help. I definitely understand that. Uh, speaking of getting back in shape and uh, it being tougher than it used to be, you and I are pretty much the same age. Uh, you were born a few months before I was. Uh, and it amazes me and, and inspires me to see what you've done, you know, the fact that you do have an IMDb page and, you know, credits that are ranged from Britney Spears to All My Children to great documentaries, you know, uh, what what inspired you to get into the film industry and, and did you want to be an actor or producer or director? What were your aspirations whenever you were younger? Uh, yeah, you know, I... I think originally I, I went into acting. I mean, I went to um, the William Esper Studios in New York, which is a very, very revered acting school, and, and I loved it. I loved um, getting in front of the class and sharing and breaking down any emotions. And, and uh, you know, coming from a small town in Canada, my hometown is called Kelowna, that this seems like just a far-off, ridiculous dream when you're younger. Like, you literally think that it's like, well, if I'm not at the right place and some producer sees me and says, hey, like, I'm put, like it just doesn't happen. So I really went, I originally went to New York and I was fitness modeling at the time and I, I, right away I wanted to get into acting lessons because I knew it was more than just, like I never wanted to just model plus, I mean, I used to box and stuff like that so I wasn't, you know, the prettiest, I was rough around the edges but I was in great shape so usually for physical work I could get booked but for anything else I was too rough. Um, so, uh, you know, I got into acting, loved that and then... Rough life, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I love that and love the book. And, um, you know, it was the first time that I was like supporting myself uh, in, in New York on my own with all my parents and stuff. And so my parents, I was supposed to go back to school and it was actually my dad that just said, Adam, you're, you know, we see how happy you are. Why are you going to come back to school here just to make us happy? And I was like, great. And then, then when my father passed away, I came back to Canada and took over his nightmare of a state with the, the strip club I inherited and, and dealing with all that drugs and gangsters and I saw how the union works in my hometown right how the BC industry works right and how me as a nightclub owner 
was really catering to drug dealers because they had the most disposable income, right? Yeah. They'd come in in winter months when we're dead and drop two to three grand on a Monday, Tuesday because they just cropped out, right? And I was like, man, what a strange business where it's like, okay, here I am selling a legal drug to a drug dealer, and I know what he does, right? But if I really think what he's doing is so bad and that he's this bad drug dealer, then I should not accept his money, right? I should escort him out of my premises and say, you know what, I don't take that kind. But you tell me a business nowadays that doesn't do that. I mean, shoot, Wachovia Bank got caught for smuggling billions of dollars of cocaine money. They didn't even serve any time. Nobody. They got a slap on the wrist, right? It was like, oh, and they had to pay a fine. Yeah. Right? It's basically, you know, those corporate gangsters were like, well, let's not put anybody to jail. Let's kind of keep this thing going here. You pay us a hefty fine. You made a lot of money. Give you a little slap. We're going to charge you a 20% interest on that, plus legal fees and everything else, and everybody's happy. So it just made me look at the whole thing differently. And then originally, I just wanted to look at the BC industry, how this billion-dollar industry functioned while remaining illegal. And when I jumped into that, and then you start really looking at how policies came to be and how Canadian policies are really heavily influenced by the United States. And then you start interviewing some of these amazing people, like Dr. Lester Grinspoon and, uh, you know, Senator Larry Campbell, who was former drugs uh, RCMP in uh, British Columbia on the drug squad. He was the mayor of Vancouver. When you talk to guys like this and they start saying it doesn't make sense, we're not helping the problem, like we were blown away. We're like, here's an ex-drug squad, now the mayor of Vancouver, now in the Senate and Senate of Canada, that's saying, like, listen, I fought this for years, undercover, front row. And he's like, all we did is we would take, you know, competition A out in a five-year investigation, and competition B would come in, and usually when they did, they would be ten times more violent to show everybody that they're the new guys in town, you know, you answer to us, you buy your product from us. And then he said, we just start a whole new five-year investigation. And as he said, it was just a business. You got to see when you're in there as a cop, rapists, murderers, pedophiles, they're lower on the list than drug dealers because there's a profit incentive to go after drug dealers. You get seizures of assets when you go after them, which is, as a father, that's backwards, right? Yeah. A little daughter, number one priority, murders, rapists, and pedophiles. Exactly. Number one. Right. Have you heard of... Uh, it, yeah, there are some other shitty things, domestic violence, everything. But number one, pedophiles, murderers, rapists. Right I 100% up. agree with that. Have you heard of a... Uh, it's a group down here in the uh, Colorado area, and I'm pretty sure that they're nationwide, but it's called LEAP. It's Law Enforcement yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry Campbell. Larry Campbell's a member of that. Okay. And then he opened up the doors, and then that's how we got Norm Stamper, who was a former police chief of Seattle, Jack Cole who was the president of LEAP out in Boston. We got all those guys, which you see in the union. We didn't know about them when we went into the union, right? We found out about these guys afterwards. And, and um, you know, it was amazing. When you sit down with those guys for two hours, and that's probably, probably my favorite part of documentary filmmaking is that you get to have interviews with amazing people that, like, not even what you show in the doc, because you only show maybe a minute or two of their interview, mm -hmm. you sit down with these people and you ask them some hard questions for two and a half hours. I mean, I came out of there being like, we'd have long drives after Seattle to like, you know, LA and I, I couldn't even stop, like, I couldn't sleep for six hours. I'd just be thinking, being like, my whole world is upside down. These guys have informed me on stuff that I never would have known, right? Reading public media or whatever else. And it really made me and the director, like, it, it really rocked our core and we wanted to make sure we put that into the union. 
And it was funny because some of, like, some big activists would be really critical of the union, be like, well, I already knew everything on there. And it was like, but 95% of the population doesn't, right? Exactly. It's, it's and, not about informing the minority. It's about informing the majority that don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's a bill here in Colorado that is uh, it's called Amendment 64. I know you said you're not too familiar with it. So I, I just want to touch on it real quick for the listeners that I do have here in Colorado. Uh, we're basically voting to regulate marijuana use just like alcohol. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of legal, you know, loopholes and things that they're going to have to close up. And, uh, you know, Department of Revenue is going to have to enforce taxes and come up with new taxes for these dispensaries that are now going to be able to sell to the public. And I understand that there's all kinds of bureaucracies that have to take place. Yeah. One of the cool things that I think they're doing is also the legalization of industrial hemp. So, you know, you'd be able to, it would give farmers another option, you know, instead of, uh, instead of growing produce or things like that, they could grow for the use of, uh, cotton or, you know, a replacement for cotton, for clothing. You could do it for fuel, you know, paper, whatever the case may be. It's going to create jobs all around. The, the hemp thing, it just seems absolutely ridiculous to me when you understand the reality of it. I mean, they, you know, media politicians are pretty good at lumping it in like it's the same thing. Because I know before I did the union, I used to think about all this, too. I'm like, oh, these medical people saying that no, but it's a bunch of hippies that want to smoke weed. And then same with hemp. I'm like, oh, yeah, so they can smoke hemp. And it's like, but when you learn that it's the male and female, exactly. plant, then you're like, you know, it, it's like, wow, why is there any law? against it and you know for selfish reasons for my country for canada it's kind of good that you guys don't because you guys buy a shitload from us we make a ton of dough selling you guys hemp and we yeah. start the ass because you can't grow it there exactly and and that's one of the things how much is that going to help colorado's economy if we don't have to go outside of the united states to get our hemp we can grow it here in colorado and the rest of the country can buy it from us it'd be fantastic i mean it's it's ridiculous that they can't grow and I, I don't know if any of your listeners are you, you know um don't not aware of this stuff but i mean it, it, to understand hemp it is really really crazy that there's any law or restriction against that um it, it really when you, it makes zero sense logically when you look at how useful the plant can be and how it can be grown in almost any i mean we're canada we're the frozen north that everybody calls us and it grows great here yeah. right it can grow anywhere so it's um you go over to Afghanistan where, you know, there's deserts and mountains. It grows great over there as well. Yeah. So uh, it, well, we, we have that with the guy from Hemp Industries talk about that in the union where he says you can grow almost anywhere in the world. You know, besides yeah. maybe Antarctica or so, you know, like South Pole, those are probably the only places it really won't grow. But just about anywhere else, I mean, it grows. And especially they grow it here, majority in like Saskatchewan and Alberta, which is really cold, right? Like that's cold yeah. flatland prairie lands here in Canada. Now, they usually do, like, one harvest in August or September, right? Just one big harvest. They grow it all year really big and then, yeah. and then take it down. Um, but that's great. I think that's uh, – but then what's going to happen because the states, you guys have this big thing where, like, you have the state's laws and then you have the federal laws, right? And the Fed always that's, that's actually uh, – you know, we get these uh, voters' pamphlets that, you know, go through each each thing that's, you know, up for – 
election, you know, whether it be a law or an amendment or whatever the case may be, and it, it lists the pros and cons. And that was actually at the top of the list as far as the uh, the cons, if you will, is that we're going to be in violation of federal law. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the 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 majority of the raids are in California, and okay. I'm not sure why. There's there's not you don't read or hear about uh, dispensaries or anything getting raided in Colorado very much. And I'm not I'm not 100% sure why. I haven't done too much research into that, but I think uh I think if we can provide the jobs and the economy boost that this can do. Yeah. And I don't see how the uh, federal government can turn its eye, you know, to what we're doing. And I think that they're going to have to either come around and make it a federal thing. Or just let us do our thing. I know you're thinking logically, though. In this whole situation, there's a lot of things that aren't very logical. Yeah. Uh, it's. I know you'd like to think that, and that's the thing that's always so so interesting. To, it, it's very interesting too, coming from a Canadian perspective, because there's a lot of things that we have, like in Canada, it is federally legal. Like it, uh, cannabis is federally recognized to having medicinal purposes. So if you have a license. There's no feds coming in to either stop you from growing because you get a federal license to grow for patients because there's many of them that are far too sick to grow for themselves. So you can be a caregiver to grow for them and um, provide as a medicine. Like it's, there's, you cannot be arrested in Canada for that if you go the proper means and go through uh, Health Canada and you get your license to grow and to have or to be a consumer. Uh, and they can't arrest you. There's no, so it's interesting to see how other countries have us in Canada have completely recognized it as having medical value. There's no argument. They, the federal government has approved it, but then the states still, I don't know, they, they have better doctors, I guess, that see something that this country doesn't see. Um, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting. I think that's another thing that really helped with the union is us coming from an outside perspective where we look at a lot of things in Canada that, you know, you know, even like we talked about it in, in, in I Am Bruce Lee, like interracial marriages only became legal in certain states in the United States in 1968. Like, that's not that long ago. We're not talking 200 years ago. We're talking the last 50 years that it wasn't even legal to marry somebody from another ethnicity, which, you know, in Canada, that was long before, right? You could marry. So we look at a lot of these things. We're like, man, the states is so advanced in some things, but some cultural things are just like, really? With all the technology we have, you guys are that backwards in some things? And something, and that is one of the things that uh, I think stirs up a lot of conversation. And uh, the, the politicians seem to play on, on things that they can't really control, you know? Instead, yeah. of, instead of focusing on things they can control, they'll focus on, like, social issues that they can't, really change you know well, yeah i mean when you when you when you sit back and you look at the whole presidential campaign and these smear campaigns that go back and forth and they're like like the big bird one about yeah, come on like okay. i was looking at that and i was like that is really like a president's campaign blog that video from a production standpoint me being a video was very crappy for one <laughs> i was like wow that's not well done and then two 
just the whole pre- like I didn't even get it because I caught just the end of it at first. And it was uh-huh. like for Ram, I was like, what are they talking about? Like, and then I, I caught, I googled and found out all the rest of it. But it's so funny to see. See, because again, in Canada, we have a lot of things that are like in Canada, you can't. Um, no company can give more than twenty five hundred bucks to uh, presidential or like a. Um, so you don't have these super packs. No, you you don't have them because you just there's no politics are as but as popular as chess up here. They're so boring, right? Have, like, you, uh, have you have you checked out any of uh, the History Channel's Men Who Built America? No, I haven't got to catch any of that. It's actually pretty interesting. It's about you know the Rockefellers, the uh, the Carnegies, the yeah, uh, J.P. Morgan, you know. Um, but in this next episode, they're going to get into basically how the president is bought. Every single election. Well, I mean, look, again, you see, we look at it so different when we're coming from another country, but being so close, right? Like, cultures are very close at the same time we're very different. But when I look at it now, like, I'm saying with the access we have on the Internet and everything, like, it just seems so apparent that it's bought now. Yeah. I, I don't know why even some people still say, oh, you're talking conspiracy theories. I'm like, no. I'm like, <laughs> you look at the political right in front platforms. Of of, like the whole thing of a democracy, like in Canada, we have several parties. When you vote, there's not just one or two, right? We have like five, right? You have NDP, conservative, liberal. You have a real choice. Like you, you can pick, right? And then they move. Like instead of just being like, well, I'm going to vote for him just because I don't like him, right? That doesn't really give you much. That's not a choice. Either their platforms, but I'm stuck with just an A or B option, so I'm forced to pick one. But, I mean, Europe has that, too. Europe, in most countries, has two to three, right? There's at least a third option where if you don't like either, then you can vote them, and they can at least get more seats in the Senate to possibly be stronger for future years. And, I mean, you look at it, and then you just see how much, you know, I think when Obama went in originally, and I'm not trying to get, you know, if you choose one side or the other in the States right now, you're, like, deaf to the other side. Exactly. But I think when he went in, I think he really had – like some good intentions, but I mean, you see that I mean, he doesn't control the how the seats in the Senate. So at the end of the day, he can get vetoed, right? He can try to pass a bill, and just get shut down. So right. it's like the president doesn't even have ultimate power. It's like, well, I want this. And they're like, no, you're voted out. Like, well, that and I'm of the belief that it doesn't matter who's in office. That's not who's making the decisions anyway. The lobbyists who you know are pumping money into these congressmen are making the decisions. Well, funny you say that, because I was just in D.C. for the premiere of uh, The Good Son at the Italian Embassy, and it seemed like everybody I talked to there, I'm like, what do you do? They're like, I'm a lobbyist, I'm a lobbyist, I'm a lobbyist. And the one, I met a really young guy there, um, uh, Vinu, Vishnu was his name, V, I called him the whole time, but um, he was a lobbyist, and he was explaining to me how, I'm like, okay, listen, like, I don't know a lot about politics, right? And I'm sitting back, and he's like, oh, dude, he's like, after you're a lobbyist, you have, it's so jaded. Perfect example, we were sitting at a dinner table because there's some big investors that paid for this film. And, and across, as I see that guy right there, and I was like, which guy? He's like, the guy with the goofy hair that's trying to cover his bald spot, old guy. I'm like, yeah. He's like, that guy's worth about $400 million. And I'm like, wow, he owns night tennis or whatever. Okay. Um, and there's an arena that they wanted to build in D.C. And supposedly it had, um, you know, a whole bunch of red flags to not get approved, like over capacity, fire hazard, this and that right amount of money was given somewhere and got approved right away, right? So it, it, it's interesting to see, you know, hearing just how this works, that these things push forward. And, and I mean, it makes sense. I, I see, if, if I compare it to my world, right, it's like you have lots of money, you can make any film you want, 
yeah. right? You're, you don't have lots of money. Then it's like, well, I have to worry about clearances for news footage and I have to worry about this. And I don't know if I can get that music cleared. So I, I don't see how it's any different than everything we clearly see in North American culture, pretty much around the world, that you spend enough, you can get anything you want, right? And it's frustrating. You can get off murder charges. I mean, <laughs> I mean, a great. It was funny because on uh, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast a lot. You know, him being my boy, and I, I like listening to it. But he brought up the question: Is like, could you even indict somebody like Bill Gates if you wanted to? Is yeah. it possible? Like the thing, he could tie you up in court. He could spend thirty million a month, and it wouldn't phase him, well, right? He, they could find every mistake that you did in your work and tie you. Like it would just never happen, right? He. he did, and I never thought about it like that when I was just singing. Like, it just really, I was driving in my car, and I was like, yeah, could you even, because I've had to deal with some lawsuits with family with my dad's inheritance and everything when I was younger, and it was all money, right? Like, if you have lots of money, you can bully people in the courts. And that's why a lot of poor people wronged all the time, because you can't go to court. Even people say, well, you can sue for costs. Well, depending on what state or province you're in, a lot of times the maximum you can get back in cost is like 20%. Well, if you spend two, you know, if you spend two hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, you know, twenty percent that's that's nothing, right? If you're down the hole, so a lot of rich people just say, yeah, go ahead, sue me, I'll screw you over, and then I'll sue you in court, and I'll spend, I, I can spend half a million dollars a year just to tie this up. What do you want to do? Yeah, that's what uh, that's what J.P. Morgan actually did to Westinghouse whenever whenever Edison and Tesla were going back and forth as far as AC/DC on currents. And the clear favorite was uh, was DC, which was not Edison's invention. So J.P. Morgan just sued the hell out of him, kept him tied up in court until he bankrupt Westinghouse, and then he created then he created General Electric. Yeah. Well, so that was his tactic was to just sue people into the ground. No, that's and I. I've experienced that, you know, recently. I had my um, accountants for for the for the union uh, make a mistake on my tax credit, right? Which is a big part of the Canadian film market for us to get a good percentage of our budget back through our tax credits. Yeah. And it wasn't said. Long story short, it wasn't set up right. And I was their guinea pig because they hadn't really done film tax credits before. They'd done agricultural ones, and they thought it'd be the same. And then when you know they lost. Thirty thousand dollars in tax credits for me, and they're like, "Oops, well, we'll knock five thousand dollars off your bill." And I was like, "No, you can knock thirty thousand off my bill. That's how much you lost." And they're like, "Well, we did get part of it back." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, no, 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 but that doesn't. I don't know how you guys. You guys are accountants. You understand math very good. You lost thirty, so that's how much I wanted." And and then you know, I was even friends with them over five years, and I went to them personally and just said, "Listen, let's figure something out. Like, I don't need the cash. Maybe give me credit on accounting work. If I, yeah, nope." Their bosses were like, "Yeah, they just kept ignoring, ignoring." So after a year of getting nothing, I was like, "Okay, well then I, I have to go to legal." Like to me, thirty thousand dollars is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Um, that's like what I make more in a year usually. So I'm like, "No, that doesn't work for me." Um. So I threatened to sue, and then they kept saying, oh, go ahead, you did this. And, like, I had every email. I had six emails where they admitted mistake, right, like, due to our inefficiencies, due to our errors. Wow. So then they finally came back and just said, okay, we'll wipe your bill clean, you know. And then my lawyer's like, and I had, like, after waiting on it, like, two years not paying my bill, I had, like, a $10,000 bill or $12,000 bill. And, you know, so I still lost, like, 18000 bucks. And my lawyer's just like, he's like, Adam, 
if you go further in my cost, you'll spend more for me fighting it. And I was like, well, that sucks. They wasted, they deliberately didn't get back to me for a year to rack up their bill, yeah. right? For the interest, because it was like credit cards, like 22%, right? So just, I think it was like originally six, and by the time we said it was 12. And then, you know, they, and then they just said no. And then it was so frustrating where I'm just like, you understand why some people want to go to kind of that mafia mentality, right? Where it's like someone shows up and says, hey, you pay this. Because it, the wrong people, like, I didn't have the money to go to court, so I just took my I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll lose another 18000 even though to me that's huge. But that's the way the courts work. It's for the rich people. Yeah, it sucks. Man, this guy is fucking up on my end. What about yours? Oh, yeah, mine's not good. I don't know. Anyway, hopefully this shit's recording. But, uh, so you, you spoke about how you listen to Joe's podcast. Uh, are you this is kind of going to be a long way to get there, but uh, are you familiar with the Death Squad community? Yes. Okay. Well, I, list, I listen to the Joe Rogan's podcast, like, religiously. Like, even Joe, when I was on the show, he thought I was just saying that to, like, compliment him. And they're like, oh, did you listen to Graham Hancock's? I'm like, 142? Hell yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, damn, you know the podcast number? I'm like, when I told you this was a bucket list for me to come on the show, I wasn't just saying that, Joe, to be cool. Like, I like I. See, well, I worked in Vancouver, which is like a four-hour drive from where I live in Kelowna, and I was going there every week for work. So it's like a four-hour drive, so I just put like two podcasts on, and that would be what I'd listen to to and from Vancouver all the time, right? That was got me by. I'd get up at three in the morning, drive to Vancouver, and then work a full day, stay for the week, and then – so the podcast was like my savior. I just listened to that all the time. So how would you say going on the Joe Rogan experience – affected your Kickstarter account? Oh, huge. I don't think I don't think we would have I don't think we would have hit our goal if it wasn't for going on Joe's podcast. I mean that was uh it was so cool of him. Um it just says a lot to, I mean yeah obviously you listen and, and and you're part of the Death Squad community that listens to him but he, I mean he's so supportive and everything like when he says on a show like he doesn't advertise anything that he doesn't believe in that's genuine from Joe. He's not just saying that. I mean, for him to come on the show when I was on there, I'm like, were you going to come back for an interview? Because you're probably, like, the number one most requested. And he's like, hell yeah, you don't even need to ask, right? And yeah. he's giving me knuckles on the show. Like, you know, most guys that are as successful as him, they want you to talk to managers and agents and try to get appearance fees and try to do, like, I wish more celebrities were like Joe. Because something I learned from doing this Ray Mancini doc is that you can do everything right, and that's all Ray did. He only wanted to win a world title for his father, and he did that, and it was all taken away because he did his job too good. He yeah. accidentally killed a fighter in the ring, and everything was taken away from him, right? His love of the sport, his respect in the industry, his endorsement deals. You know, so people that have success should really, really be appreciated because it can all be taken away even from powers you can't control. Yeah. Like that, right? One incident can take it all away. So I wish everyone was as as Joe. Like it really is just – it's so awesome to see the, the positivity that his podcast brings throughout the world. And that's something I was trying to explain to him. Like I'm up here in Canada, man, and every guy listens to your podcast, yeah. right? And he's like – and it really does bring a positive message and it inspires people. And I, I think it – I don't even think – they talk about on the show how much magic it's created. I don't even think they realize – 
I mean, I get fired up and inspired, and I knew once I was in, like, my 60th podcast, I'm like, I've got to get on the show one day. I've got to get on there and chat, and then... There's a, there's a few of us that, that do these podcasts, and uh, and that's what we, we always bring up. Mitch Nutter, he, he has a podcast called Hiding From My Wife. Hiding From My Wife. Yeah, it's, uh, his wife is apparently a crazy broad that stomps around upstairs and uh, screams at him and tries to kill him, but... um. Either way, uh, that's one of the things that he brought up was he doesn't think that Joe realizes the scope of what this community has done, you know, and and what we're capable of. You know, uh, we're actually going to be doing a 24-hour podcast tomorrow to raise funds to send to victims of Sandy. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, we're pretty excited about that, but, I mean – how else would I be in contact with, you know, other people who want to raise money for people who are less fortunate than the community that we've set up? And uh, how else would I be able to get in touch with you and then, you know, talk to you and let other people hear, you know, what we're, what we have going on? You know, I, I think it's awesome. No, it's, it's, well, it's a big part of what we're talking about in the culture high, right? Where, this global cultural shift of people being able to be in contact with each other and aware much more of what's really going on around the world is really changing. Like when we did the union back in 2005, people thought we were crazy. You're doing a dog on weed. Yeah. We're nuts. Like, and from both sides, people were like stupid, illegal thing, you know, and, and then like the gangsters I grew up with were like, man, you're going to piss a lot of people off, man. You're going to put you and your family in danger talking about this stuff. And I'm like, you guys don't get my vision. It's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah. It's only going to educate people. Um, then once they saw it it, it, it did. I never really got any threats or anything like that originally, which people thought. But now you're seeing that, like, with Joe Rogan's podcast and with things. I mean, yeah, like Kickstarter, to be able to raise that kind of money, you know, from a community. And, and I knew from not just the pod, but from us over the years with our Facebook following and the following of the union and how so many people like really talk about it being an amazing documentary, like one of their top five favorites. Because when I go to Hollywood and stuff, like in, I'm going to AFM next week, like the numbers the union sold, that's all they care about. And they're like, yeah. Peanuts. This thing grows half a million bucks. This thing's a joke, right? Stupid documentary. <laughs> I'm like, um, I'm like, and, but then, you know, now with Kickstarter, it's like, everyone's like, okay, you know, we were able to raise $240,000 in 43 days with from any publicist, any marketing. That was done through a just internet community, through Joe Rogan's podcast. And anyone looking at, even my distributor, Phase 4 Films, who's awesome. Barry gets it. He knows event theatricals. He did release on Kevin Smith's Red State in Canada. Like, Great he gets it. There's a market for that, right, for certain people. So he got it, like, he, he was always interested in the culture. He was one of the first people to give us a pre-sale. But then when he saw that, he's like, oh, Adam, now we want to do a big event theatrical all across Canada and North America, and then we'll do a regular scattered release just for two to three days in, like, 100 theaters. Because, like, now there's that proof. It's like, okay, do you still believe that there's no community? Because all films are supposed to be about, well, from the business side, not the way I make them. I like to make things that... My motto is, and it sounds cheesy and cliche, is to inspire the world in a positive way through my work. But when you go to Hollywood, all they care about is how much do I spend, how much do I make, right? I don't care if we're doing Paranormal Activity 5 million. If I can spend 2 million and make 10, that's a fantastic movie, yeah. right? I don't care if it gets a zero on Rotten Tomatoes, great. 
Exactly. It made money. So now when they see this, they what their keys are is like, okay, market interest, what do I spend? So now when they're like, oh, there's not really an interest for that, and the market's not into it, I'm like, really? I had 3,500 people pledge their hard-earned money and, and scattered amounts from all the world. I mean, I got pledges from Belgium and South Africa and, and, and Estonia and places I didn't even know, right, just because they'd seen the union online or whatever. So now it's opened up a lot of people's eyes where people are like, wow, this film truly has a crazy cult following. Have you guys started shooting? We start shooting next month. We've had some delays on shooting because my director, because I'm keeping all same crew, right? Well, other than I've got a new production company that I work for called Aquila. It's a great company out of Alberta. Uh, strengthens us, but the creative crew is all the same. Same director, same writer, same editor, co-producer Stephen Green and myself. And they are tied up in reality shows that they're actually doing. Well, one of them is doing Bachelor Canada, and the other one was doing one called The Mistress. So, and they have big ironclad contracts, right? That they just <laughs> so they literally they put in their notice, and then we start shooting in November. And then you know the director doesn't want to rush because every interview is vitally important. So, and you know everyone says like they did with the union, as they said, oh, this subject matter is beaten to death. There's nothing new to learn. Very untrue. There's lots going on around the world, lots to learn, and if it's presented in the right way, can still be a great entertaining film. So Brett's making sure that he has that covered, you know, and then every interview you do that it's, you know, especially now upping it our cameras and the way we're shooting and lighting it to give it a cinematic feel. Now we're getting a theatrical release that, you know, we have to make sure that if we're interviewing someone that that interview is vitally important. We're not spending you know, five, six, seven grand to fly out and interview them, and then they don't give us anything good, right? If uh, what a lot of people forget with films, and sorry to interrupt you, oh, go for it. I'm sorry. Um, is that you know, although it is going to be educational and informational, at the end of the day, it's still a movie, so it has to be entertaining. So you can find a lot of guys that have amazing credentials, right? They got all these, you know, they're the smartest person in the world on paper, but sometimes interviewing them, they just suck. Right, some people are just are not a good interviews. Other people are fantastic. Like that's why Joe, I think, was so great in the union. Is you have all these doctors and ex pops and lawyers, and and then you have Joe that said what he said was extremely intelligent, but it was very like guy next door and funny at the same time. You so can't nerf the world, right? You can't nerf the world. Yeah, that's that's become really famous. That saying, <laughs> um, the world. So if uh, if one of the three states, it's uh, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, are all three, you know, trying to pass similar similar laws, uh, would that would you guys cover that in the culture high? Yeah, we're definitely looking. At, you know, we're looking at a whole bunch of things, but we're definitely looking how now you're seeing states that are. You know, that's all part of the, you know, the, the one-liner for the culture is that you're starting to see a global cultural shift in the way people view drug laws. The kind of professional and intelligent people that are coming out speaking against it, a lot of them don't have the answer, but they're just saying what we're doing is not working. So we have to, we have to fundamentally change the way we look at things, right? And that's something that is fascinating, that it almost seems like a slight bit of evolution. Like, people are just looking at, like, it's not as easy as just saying there's good and bad, there's black and white anymore, right? And you see that with everything now, and this has to do with the Internet. That's where the Internet's a big section of the culture high. Is Like, look at wars, right? During World War One and World War Two, it was easy. Good guys, bad guys, right? That was a clear distinction. 
it used to be valiant. Not to say I don't support the troops, but it, you know, you were prouder back then to go to war. Right? A lot of young guys were dying to sign up, being like, I'm going to go protect my country. It's time. Now, you know, you have a lot of experience. Like, man, I don't really know what we were doing in some of these places. It's getting kind of confusing. Are we over there for financial purposes? We're protecting weird people when we're over there. I think that's come from the internet, though. You know, the- I mean, that's what I mean. That section yeah. that. There's a global cultural shift in the way we don't look at anything the same because we have way more access to information. Exactly. And you can't fool, like in the union, when you see Ronald Reagan say, you know, we have this new information, I'm surprised this information hasn't been brought more to the media than it has. They believe that marijuana could be the most dangerous drug that is in use in our society today. But think, when that was shown in the 80s, right, and a president, you were like, wow, that is the guy that is running for president of the United States. Like, what information he has must be the most solid most backable information on the planet. But where and, were you going to go? Where were you going to go to prove him wrong? I yeah, mean, you, you, would great, like, you would have to go to great lengths just to prove one guy wrong. And yeah, then you'd be called Library of Congress. You'd right? be called a fucking kook that yeah. you know. Oh, you're doing all this work just to prove him wrong on that, you know? Yeah. Whereas now you can just Google it. Yeah, like literally, you can, you know, and a reporter be like, "What, what, uh, what scientific documentation, doc, documentation was that from?" I'd like to take a look at it. Yeah. Oh, what was this one? Like on your phone yeah. while you're there, being like, "Well, I don't know. I'm reading this differently than you, and I've looked up several other studies based on the same thing, and there's some conflicting information there, so I can make an educated opinion on myself based on reading five or six of them, and I can be much more educated than just reading one or the other." Right, it's a big part of like there's some of the internet gurus we're trying to reach out to to talk about how that's changed, you know now, and that's what we always encourage in the union, right? Like, don't take everything we say in there, you know, verbatim. Research it afterwards. We put the informational links on our website. You know, if you if you don't think it's true, look it up. Yeah. Go do the research. Once we've got you at that point, that's perfect. You're educating yourself and you're doing more research because you found an interest. That's great. So. How old were you whenever you did or started to uh, try to put together the union? I was 24 when I tried to do the union when we started. Um, do you know what I was doing whenever I was 24? Not trying to put together a life-changing film. Okay, yeah. Let's just put it that way. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I Trust me, we didn't think it was going to be – like, we never imagined it would have this kind of following. Like – Honestly, to, to, for selfish reasons, when we started, we're just like, oh, we'll make a great film that'll help our career, skyrocket as filmmakers, and we'll move on and do the next thing, right? And that was stupid because it took way longer. <laughs> like, we thought we'd be done in like a year and a half and we'd be out doing a, well, you know, we started in 2005. You look at our website, Conception, it didn't get a DVD deal until 2009. So like four years. My daughter wasn't even thought of when we started and she was born when we were done coming to the film festivals when we were, Damn. So it uh, it took way longer. If you would have told me that going in, I probably would have pulled the plug, right? But once I was halfway in, I borrowed in a tremendous amount of money from my stepfather. I was like, well, this is the only way I know how to pay back. Like, my minimum wage certainly isn't going to pay. I'll be paying it back for the rest of my life, right? Like, I have to sell this film and get it out into the market and get it there. Otherwise, I'll never be able to pay him back. So you put yourself in a compromising position, Huge. I bought a quarter million bucks for my dad. Fuck. My first movie, right? Like, yeah. 
and doing it on pot. And trust me, he's the only guy. Even my mom was kind of like, you know, she'd have a few glasses of wine. And she's like, what is this? You keep dumping money into this stupid movie and Damn. blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then now, you know, even recently, even just in the year and a half, like, I mean, I still owe my dad, I think, 95000 on the union, right? He's still not paid off. That's why the only I, I, criticism doesn't bother me at all. Whatever you think about my work, I'm so over that, right? Whether you like my work or not. But when I'll put something like to support because we're trying to get back on Netflix or something, and you know some retard is like, "Ooh, what are you all about the money?" I was like, "Oh, all about the money." I still owe my dad a hundred thousand dollars from two thousand and four. Yeah. Okay. If I was all about the money, I would have quit a long time ago. My dad is the, my stepdad is the president of Cameron Oil Industries. If I wanted to go make a lot of money, I could have gone work for sales for him and started making 150, 200 grand a year a long time ago. Damn. Right? But I stayed in this crazy documentary film industry, which the D for documentary also stands death in the film industry. Right? <laughs> they look at it as making no money, a lot of work, and not enough eyes on it. Which do you, do you feel like it's coming, or, like there's a resurgence in the documentary film. I mean, I don't know about, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I would much rather watch a documentary than a sitcom. I, I definitely, you see, the thing is, is it just, for me, there's no doubt I will do documentaries for the rest of my life. I love them more than, like, I enjoy going to a popcorn film like Avengers, too. I love those movies. But I know I'm not going to get to produce those, right? Yeah. Like, I, I'm not in the right families. I don't know enough people in Hollywood. When I do dots, I can have much more control, creative control, which is what I want to do, right? And I can do things I'm really interested in and passionate about. And, you know, from the union to I Am Bruce Lee to The Good Son to The Culture High, when people walk out of my movies they are affected by what they saw on camera. And to me, that's more valuable than than doing something that just because it's cool and there's celebrities in it, right? I've, I'm, I'm over that. I was hooked from the time when we had a sold-out screening for the Vancouver Film Festival in 2007. We're walking up to the theater. And we did a few other small festivals that we won before that, and there'd be like 15, 20 people in the theater. And we're like, oh. So Vancouver, we knew it was going to be busy. We had friends and family. Yeah. And we go to the theater, and there's a lineup out front, and the th they do most of their things in the Granville Theater there at the festival. We're like, whoa, somebody's movie's really busy. And then there was a sign on the on the sidewalk that said, rush tickets for the union. And I was like, that's for us? What? Yeah, there was like, it was sold out. There's only 50 tickets, and they were lined up to get the last 50 tickets, 425 seats. The only two empty seats were broken. There was no seat in them. They were just the shell on the back. Yeah. And then sitting in that theater was it was like watching it all over again and, you know, seeing people laugh when Joe Rogan's on and seeing people, you know, cheering up when Greg Cooper was on with MS and then standing ovation for like 25 minutes afterwards. I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm like, I'm fucked. I will only ever want to. How can I go from that now to doing a sales job or something where it's yeah. like, and I have to. I've been doing that up until just a month ago, I signed a contract where I'm a full-time producer now. I was always doing, I was working at Shaw Cable, I was working at Cintas, uniforms and masks. And there was such an emptiness where I'd, I'd kill it for a quarter and I'd get this big bonus check of like seven grand. It was like, oh, don't you feel great? Go out and kill it again. And I'm like, this piece of paper with some digits on it. All I'm going to do is I'm going to like pay off my credit card, some money on this bill, pay a little bit on the mortgage. Like, that's not fulfilling, man. That's really bad. Like, that really sucks. Yeah. So, 
I, I just kept pressing forward, even though my family really wanted me. They're like, Adam, you, okay, you've tried it since 2005. You haven't been able to make a living at it. You did great with the union, but you should, you should pack in, right? You should give up making movies now and um, just go get a good sales job and start making some real money. And this was recently? This was just like eight, a year ago, less than a year ago. And then I signed this contract with an amazing company in Alberta, and now I'm making films full-time, and then everybody saw how well we did on Kickstarter, and then The Good Son being get, receiving rave reviews, and everybody's like, oh, my God, what we're, like, you know, now people are not trying to admit that they were wrong, but they're like, you did it, you chased it, just yeah. keep going, do what you're doing. So That's fucking awesome, dude. Thanks, brother. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty fucking sweet, dude. I, uh, I've definitely been in a situation where the family says, oh, you're not going to be able to do something, and, and uh, it sucks, you know, but uh, you either move past it and prove them wrong, or you succumb to whatever fucking hell of a life that they want you to have. You know, what's funny is that it's, and for me, it's people are like, man, how did you do it? How did you say it? And I'm like, I don't think it's anything special. I just think I'm dumb and naive that I, when they would hear that, it would be like, blotty, blotty, blah. You did great with the last one, bloody. <laughs> I would all like seriously. It would go over my head. There was only one day I remember. I was, I was pretty, I was emotional, and I was talking to my wife, and I asked her. I said, because she works her ass off, and you know, and and it hasn't really got either of our kids time to take maternity or anything. She started working right away. Where I was just like, babe, do you want me to quit? Because for you, you've worked hard. If you want me to do it, and she's like, Adam, she's like, it's never like you're just sitting around the house doing nothing. You've always gotten a job, and you're doing the stuff on the side. So if you're just sitting around not earning your way, I'd have a problem. Yeah. She's like, she's like you're always working, whether it's even – shoot, I went back to my, my boxing coach owns a nightclub here. I was working a sales job during the week, and then I was doing the door on the weekends. Just till six months ago, I just quit because I didn't have the time. Yeah. But before then, I was still working on the door, right? 32 years old, having to throw out drunks and deal with fights and Damn. and all that stuff. So, you know, she was like, Adam, you've always worked. So I, I have no issue. Like, she's like, if we can't pay bills and, you know, we can't live, she's like, and you're just sitting around saying, I'm trying to get moves to go, then I'd have a problem. But she's yeah. like, always had a side job too. So kind of going back to where I got way off tangent is that, those are the only comments on my social media that it bugs me, and I'm trying to get more people to, to listen, is that believe me when I say, you know, and, and thank you to the amazing people that supported on Kickstarter. Most of those people get it. It's that I don't do this for money. Like, even that money from Kickstarter, that is all sitting in an account for the culture high. I haven't touched a dime yet, right? It's sitting there waiting to go. And in fact, because I got on at this company at Aquila and we needed the money for my director and everybody to pull them to do I'm getting no producer fee on the culture high. I've waived mine so I can put it all into the film. So we can buy more news footage, have extra production days. We're looking at a big Europe trip to get a whole bunch of scientists and professionals out in the UK. Nice. Saved mine, right? Where even my crew, my director and the editor are like, Adam, that's not cool. You should put yourself in there for something. I'm like, we'll get it on the next one. I was like, I believe that the community will come out to support in the theaters when we do this. So... I'm fine. I'll wave mine. Let's just go. Let's get it done and just make a great film because everyone's already believed in us on Kickstarter. Now it's time for us to go out there and get it done. So, how know, long? How long do you think it's going to take? About a year. 
You know, we, we wish he's starting, you know, and I, I'm trying to respond to everybody whenever he's like, why am I just started? Like, you got this money. And then I'm like, but the thing is, too, is like Brett and I have a lot of research, right? We just don't, and I'm not trying to say anybody else that's on the cannabis stock, but we just don't run out and start interviewing people, right? Like, oh, this guy has a grow up. Let's go film it. Or this is like, you know, that's how you earn through money really fast. We did that stakes with the union, right? We got a lot of interviews that were useless and spent a lot of money. So now it's very calculated, watching YouTube clips of people, making sure that they're going to cover the questions that we're trying to do to drive the story. So everything's very calculated. And when we do, we want to make sure that our social media is caught up because we're going to allow everybody to follow us through the process, right? Once we're shooting, everything is going to be updated on Twitter and Facebook site and everything so that the audience can come on the journey with us being like, oh, different interview Joe, that's sweet. Yeah. Here's photos, here's some of the questions they asked, here's some behind-the-scenes footage. Oh, I remember when you did that a year ago, I couldn't wait to see what came out of the interview, yeah. right? So <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, that way, you know, we're, we're, we're promoting the movie as we go through, but then also all those people that came from Kickstarter and everything, they get to follow that journey with us, right? And they can be tweeting me and, and Facebooking and asking questions. And I mean, we're never going to give any information of what's going to actually come out in the film. Of course. We'll give you cool, fun stuff. Like, you know, Joe will be like, what's up? You guys better watch this or what, something like that, right? Yeah. Like, we'll do fun stuff like that, but never going to let you know the, the good stuff. We've got to save that for the screen, right? We don't give you the best stuff. To Obviously. Obviously. Um, so you also produced a movie called I Am Bruce Lee. Yes. Um, just to touch on that real quick, uh, one of uh, my followers, he wanted to know what you think Bruce Lee's impact on MMA was. Well, I know when we dove into the research, it's, I'd say it's pretty big, and I mean, Dana White says in the movie that he believes he's the godfather of mixed martial arts, and here's why, right? It's coming straight from Dana's quote. Dana says, listen, all these guys played a piece. Joe Lewis, the Joe Lewis, the boxer, the, the, the Gracies, they all did, right? They all played a part. But the reason what separates Bruce Lee from everybody else is he was the first that you can kind of, like, in the early 60s that said, you know, no one style is the right style, right? You have to take the best of everything. And what a lot of, like, big martial artists like Chuck Norris and Joe Lewis, why they trained with Bruce is because Bruce, when he would do demonstrations, said, I am important for my style, but the opponent in front of me is the most important thing. Because, say he's a heavier, bigger guy. Well, you're not going to face him the same way you face a guy that's the same weight as you, right? Exactly. You're not going to take risks of headshots. When the guy's bigger, like I used to box him too, and I, I got decent hands, but if I'm going to fight a guy that's like, you know, 260, 270 pounds, I definitely want him to get a handle on me, right? I'd much rather trust where my training is standing. He takes me to the ground. I'm going to have a tough time getting a 300-pound man off of me, right? So For sure. Look at that differently. Whereas if I thought some guy really small, other than making all these guys get too hard if they bend me and hold me, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, back in the day, I didn't worry about that because I could get up, right? Like, so Bruce Lee saw this at a very early, and it was when he had that famous fight that's in the movie, with the Korean guy or the the Chinese guy that came over and said, "You can't teach white, you can't teach Caucasians for Scott. Yeah. and he said, "Screw you!" And they said, "Okay, well, you can either fight or you can quit." And he said, "Well, I'll fight." And it, very important about this fight, and it seems almost mythological. It's like he fought and beat the guy, no problem, but he said he should have beat him way faster. 
He said physically, like, this guy studied martial arts, but Bruce Lee trained like an athlete too, right? He ran strength and conditioning. He did climbing. He did all the best state-of-the-art stuff, watched his diet, which we didn't really do in the 60s and 70s, right? Exactly. They had it at time, right? You hear about athletes in the NFL. And they were smoking and stuff back in the 70s. They go in the dressing room, right? Like, crazy. Drinking beer and smoking. Yeah. He was aware of all that. And, you know, when he didn't finish him as fast as he could, then he was like, wow, there's some major flaws in my style. And he started, he would watch Bruce Lee, he'd watch um, Commodore Lee tapes backwards because he was in Southpaw to see how his footwork would be. And he said, man, he has amazing hands and footwork. I can take stuff from him. And he really, before he passed away, really wanted to get into the grappling. Because he said almost every altercation gets him tight, where you're then dealing with judo throws and grappling and arm bars. And in one of his old movies, you look, he's one of the first guys that had an MMA club with the fingers cut out. Yep. And there's an arm bar in the movie, right? Which, who would have thought in, like, you know, this is, we're talking about the 60s, 70s, that an arm bar would look cool, right? Like, right. If arm bars first came out in UFC, we're like, what's he doing? That's, the guy's tapping? What's going on? <laughs> and where Dana says that, you know, not to take the Gracies are amazing, like I said, all these people played a part, but Gracies only believed in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Right? Other people only believed in their style. It's, no, no, this is the best, and this is... Whereas Bruce Lee said, no, 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 I think if you take bits of everything, like Kajakembo, kickboxing, this, that, that will make you the best, which then all came to be tested in 1993 when UFC really hit the sky, and then you really put them in there. Okay, what works? Wow, wrestlers are really big, right? They're able to take people to the ground. Jiu-Jitsu is amazing. Submit guys. Striking is great, but you got to have takedown defense, right? you got to have all the elements. And now you're seeing the new generation of MMA is a whole new level where, like Rory McDonald, who's from my hometown, right? He tra- I trained at his – and Michael Hill that's on the show, he was just at my premiere the other day. He's a buddy of mine. He lives a block away from my house. You mean the guy who walks around without his shirt on all the damn time? God. <laughs> I told the boy thing. to put his fucking shirt on. I've been teasing about that when he's like, the thing is, he's a really, it's a nice guy. And it's funny to see how the shows steer you in certain ways because he's a pretty nice guy. Came up pretty hard. So, um, but yeah, I've even teased him. I'm like, dude, you should have wore your shirt, man. <laughs> but, um, but those guys all, like in Rory, I mean, Rory had to have a waiver signed so he could compete as young as he did by his mom. From the time that he started, he learned it all. Muay Thai, boxing. Man, I'm worried about I'm worried about BJ. Oh, I didn't. I, I, who knows? You know, anything can happen. But I'm thinking from an outside perspective. Like, I think Roy's in the next level. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. I'm worried for BJ. No, no, I, I get. I, I hear what you're saying, and it's just. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a shitty situation for Rory because. You have the UFC fighter saying, oh, way to pick on an old legend, right? That you're going to, like, wait, like, but it wasn't him. BJ wanted yeah. Rory, right? So then Rory's like, yeah, yeah, I'll answer the call, no problem, right? And then if he doesn't win, right, because every, I mean, BJ's no slouch, regardless. Yes, that's what I was going to say is BJ is one of my all-time favorites. So I can't root against BJ, but Rory, man, it's going to be rough. And he's just a kid. He's 22 years old, right? And he's killing people. And Roy's that new age of, like, when I grew up, you know, I boxed, and there's tough guys, and this and that, like, you know, tough guys is, you know, there's a persona, like, they're rough, and then, like, Rory, when you meet him, like, he's the most, other than his cauliflower ear, he looks kind of unassuming, like, yeah. he's the kind of guy being like, I'll punch this four-eyed dude, <laughs> like, 
And you're like, oh, yeah, well, you will get put into a whole new world if you do that, my friend. Yeah, bad idea. So uh, what do you – I'm not a fan of WWE, you know, the world (laughs) wrestling, whatever the fuck it's called. But but Chael Sonnen kind of brings that kind of persona to the UFC. What do you think about this uh, Chael Sonnen versus Jones? Well, you have to take that it's great marketing, right? Yeah. Because who doesn't want to see – John Jones, fuck Chael Sonnen. <laughs> right? And I'll give, I, did you listen to Chael Sonnen's podcast on Joe Rogan's podcast? Oh, yeah. You know, when you get him there and you see him outside of things and he admits, like, look, I'm scaring everybody else, but, like, I'm selling myself. I'm a yeah. brand. And that's something that I always argue this when they say, well, UFC fighters don't get paid with their worth. And I'm like, to an extent, but unlike other sports, they're allowed to self-brand themselves self-market, Twitter, like, no other sport can you come in wearing all these advertisements. Like, you yeah. can't be an NHLer and wear 55 advertisements right. and have, you can't do that, right? It has to all go through the league. So, you know, and then I love where Dana Ward's guys, like, fight of the night, submission of the night. That sounds great, yeah. right? It'd be great if they had something out in pro sports. Like, if your team wins, everybody gets paid more. You lose, you don't get. So then everybody's got an incentive instead of being like, well, I get paid five million bucks regardless if I have a good game or a shitty game. Exactly. So I do, and I mean, I met John Bones Jones on the set of I Am Bruce Lee, and I will tell you, and all those people trying to diss him, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I met him right after he won the belt. I think people forget he's 23 years old, or just turned 24, right? He's a kid. So some of the things that, you know, come up that, you know, he makes a mistake, or why didn't he do this, or this, he's 24 years old. Like you said, what were you doing when you were 24? When I was, like nobody's like he's fighting the toughest people in the world and he's fighting all the high rank challengers that you know he started like 21 now he's 24 like okay yeah he's gonna say some things or do some things but he's he's a kid but i'll tell you he wanted to hang out every night but we were busy because i had to work every night he offered to come to dinner because i was driving him around absolute sweetheart nicest guy i have nothing bad to say about john jones i, I think he's an amazing guy and of course there's Several reasons why this Chael Sonnen thing works. It's good for the show. It's going to be probably the most watched tough in a long time. Of course. But I, I also think that it didn't matter who they would have put in there with Chael. It still would have been the most watched. Well, that's – yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know because it helps that John – because there's a lot of, of people that don't like Jones either right now, which, you know, for whatever reason. Usually once you start getting really good, then everybody wants to hate on you, right? So – but – um you know, I think for that, and then because he turned down that fight, which I like his two reasons. They're valid to me. You know, one saying that Dan Henderson didn't announce his injury for a month, right, and Chael had been training for him, so they were ready, right, yeah. five weeks ready, and then he was only going to have a couple. That's smart. I don't care what anybody says. I wouldn't want to jump into as someone who's a pro boxer. If someone had been training specifically for me for five weeks and I was given like a week or two notice, regardless of how much better I think I might am, I'm not going to take that. I'd say, exactly. no, no, I'm going to get make sure I'm in prime shape, 100% healed, and then I'm going to look at some tape, make sure that I'm ready for his style. And then the other part is I like where Jones originally said, you know, I didn't want to give him the money. I don't think he's entitled to it, right? I didn't want to give him all the pay-per-view, and I don't think he's deserving because he's, you know, but Chael's hyping himself up, so good for him, right? He's putting himself <laughs> out there, and now the show's the best way because the, like, I can't wait for them to fight, and every episode, you know, there's going to be animosity between the two, because Chael's going to be in his face every episode, and it, I, I look forward to it, and I, I wish nothing but the best for, for John in the next couple of years, and I think it was just, I was really blessed that we got to interview him for I Am Bruce Lee. Uh, I literally picked him up from the airport, it was like a week after he won the belt, 
and he was he had it on his shoulder in a case because they just got it right. And yeah. It and and both me and one of my best friends, Jared, was there at the time because I hired him as the PA, not because he needed the money, he just wanted to help out. But we both said that John Jones was world. You can tell he's genuine and has a heart. He was really polite and nice to both of us, and just seemed like one. Sometimes I forgot he was one of the. Like he was talking about some of the Twitter messages that were really hurting him from people like, and like he's like, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "Man, that's like he was talking to us like we're one of the boys." And we're like, yeah. "Oh man, I wouldn't let it get to you. I mean, you're on top of the world now." And I'm like, "Who am I to tell you, man? I'm a driver, I'm a line producer. What does it matter what I think, right? I'm a dorky guy driving you to your hotel." Exactly. Um, he even be like, "Kind of, what do you think?" Like he was he, nothing but good to say about him, man. He's a first class champion. That's awesome. Uh, it's got to be cool to be able to meet, you know, different, uh, not even just celebrities, but interesting people. Uh, so if you ever need a production assistant, you have my Skype number. Just give me a fucking <laughs> ring. Yeah, I'll go fucking hang out with John Jones and Joe Rogan and fucking Graham Hancock with you. You know what's interesting is that, that that's been a that's been a quite common offer this time around for the call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'll come help. I'll come help. And I was so. like, I was like, I think showing up to set with twenty-one production assistants who kind of feel. Well, hey man, I know uh, you got another appointment coming up here in about ten minutes, so uh, I'll I'll let you get going. But uh, is there where can people find you? Uh, I'm you know just like you, you can track me down on Twitter or Facebook. My Twitter is just Adam Score G, but it, the the score instead of Score G I E, which is my name, it's Score like a goal with a capital G. Or Facebook me. I try to get back to everybody I can, and uh, or Kickstarter or whatever. Any of the social media sites, I'm pretty good. Other than MySpace, I don't know if that still exists or not. But I'm not sure. Uh, but I will say this, man. You you are definitely uh, one of the easiest people to get in contact with as far as uh, you know celebrities are concerned. And uh, I appreciate you being you know so generous as to uh, loan me your time. And hopefully, uh, we'll be hearing a lot about the culture high here soon. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. I appreciate you putting me in the celebrity category. Water now, pal, don't foul out, pal, pow, pow, down south, pow now, brown cow, loud mouth, shout, shout, had to knock him out, shout, bail him out now, just put it on my loud account, rip me this, never will I back down, sleep this, breathe this, never wear me out, crown, read lips, she licks, try to pull my crowd down, weed lit, need clips, playing in the background, how, how, I don't get it, should've got him out already, little Greg Maddox mixed in with Roy Holiday, underlay, underlay, arriba, arriba, Ash Ross coming through your speakers, the yeah, about time you read up. I was in the out crowd playing with some D cups. Ah, oh, nah, G shucks, they don't mean to keep ya. They just need a little TLC every three months, so it's like, me and Chuck, we made this in the kitchen. I'm not bullshit, we really made this in the kitchen. Put the mic up, NPC on the table. Wrote a couple rhymes, so check what I'm saying. Me and Chuck, we made this in the kitchen. I'm not bullshit, we really made this in the kitchen. Put the mic up, NPC. On the tape, roll a couple rounds to beat what I'm saying. Yeah. Now I got my feet up without any sneakers But if I did, they'd probably be some beach ups Beach up, beach up, beats up the knees up Face be mean, make you lean like the pizza Need 
the Grim Reaper, killing them in FIFA. Kick it in the backyard, sip a margarita. Eat the dark meat, pepper on the paprika. Could have kept these, but I had to see the sea, cause five on no freedom. Kiddo, don't be dumb. Me won't leave, two on five in my green blood. Knee bud, knee bud. Please only live once, read a couple books when I'm soaking up the heat, son. We've only begun, begun's a begun. Speak on you, sheep, the dosek is demon. Recon and sweet on la vie, rapion. Get up out of bed, turn my chi on. Uh. Me and Chuck, we made this in the kitchen I'm not bullshit, we really made this in the kitchen Put the mic up, NPC on the table Wrote a couple rhymes, so check what I'm saying Me and Chuck, we made this in the kitchen I'm not bullshit